The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness is built to take you further off the beaten path. It has 9.5 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, plus off-road wheels, rugged all-terrain tires, and advanced dual-function X-Mode to help get you through deep snow, gravel, and mud. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. Adventure elevated. To explore all you can do with the rugged Subaru Wilderness family of vehicles, visit Subaru.com wilderness. In an ex-com meeting on the 24th of October 1962, US Secretary of State Dean Rusk whispered to National Security Advisor McGeorge Bundy, We are eyeball to eyeball, he said, and I think the other fellow just blinked. This memorable quote is often used when describing the dangerous second phase of the 13 days that marked the hottest period of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And while Rusk's comment might belie the physical proximity of US and USSR forces, it certainly evokes the tense, charged and hostile nature of the standoff as it entered its second week. I'm Eleanor Evans, and in the fourth and final episode of this series on the Cuban Missile Crisis, we'll be exploring the precipitous last days, the agreement that brought the crisis to an end, and the varied responses of leaders who felt relief, regret or fury at its conclusion. Last episode, we left John F. Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev both at the very beginning of a tentative compromise. But the situation remained on a knife edge. Leaders in both East and West were wary of making a wrong move that could light a spark to the tinderbox of Soviet troops and missiles on Cuba. Meanwhile, Fidel Castro's letter, 
written on the evening of the 26th of October, was making its way slowly towards Castro's communist ally. Here's Mark White, Professor of History at Queen Mary London and the author of several books on the American presidency and the Cuban Missile Crisis, with a reminder of how the situation looked as the world entered the second week of the 13 days. I think there were two days in the second week of the Cuban Missile Crisis when war seems a real possibility. And one is the 27th of October, and the other is the 24th of October. The morning of the 24th of October is the morning when the blockade sort of really comes into effect. Soviet submarines and ships are steaming towards the line of American ships. The first big question in the second week of the Cuban Missile Crisis is, will Khrushchev respect the blockade? Or will Soviet ships and submarines try and, you know, push through the blockade line and continue on for Cuba? Had they done that, there would have been a war on the seas and therefore maybe uh, World War Three. And Kennedy and his advisors are sitting around in an XCOM meeting on the morning of the 24th of October, just listening for reports from the seas around Cuba, really thinking they're on the verge of World War Three. Robert Kennedy gives a very vivid description of this in his memoir, 13 Days. He looks across the table at his brother, and he says his brother looked grey, and, uh, you know, they really thought war was possible. And then they get the report that the last minute, so ships stopped dead in the water, and the ships began to turn around and head back. So... War had been averted. It had been clear that Khrushchev, it was clear that Khrushchev was going to respect the blockade. That still left the question of how to get the missiles out that were already there. So, the blockade had been respected, but the tension was still bristling. What continued was a series of letters between both leaders, and two letters in particular, which Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev sent to JFK on the 26th and 27th of October, are crucial. Let's hear more on these. On the 26th of October, during the evening, the, the US was, receives a long, remarkable, deeply emotional uh, letter from Khrushchev, uh, so from Khrushchev to Kennedy on the 26th of October. In which it, it's, it's very unlike normal diplomatic correspondence, it's, which isn't formal. This is personal. Khrushchev talks about the horrors of war, how he's lived through two wars, and he knows that war only ends when it's uh, uh, caused death and destruction. And then he offers a, a way out. He offers a settlement. He basically says, if you promise not to invade Cuba in the future, we'll remove our missiles. It's, the language is slightly vague. That's basically what he's offering. And so, you know, Kennedy goes to bed that night thinking, you know, great, maybe a settlement is at hand. But then the following morning, there's a second letter from Khrushchev, which again offers a settlement but demands more concessions. He says, you know, we'll remove the missiles from Cuba if you promise not to invade Cuba, and also if you agree to remove the missile, your, your missiles from Turkey. But that's the turning point in terms of the correspondence. From that point onwards, um, there, was a, there was a deal that Kennedy can respond to. Kennedy was in possession of two letters from Khrushchev, with two different offers that proposed the beginnings of resolution. But the question of how the US should respond remained uncertain. And on the 27th of October, several other events saw the situation escalate to new heights. Let's hear more on these events and how Khrushchev was seeing things from William Taubman, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and the author of a Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Khrushchev. He was nervous. And then there were several developments which occurred, which made him even more nervous. 
Uh, one was that an American U-2 spy plane, which was far, far from Cuba, which was up, which was up near Alaska, strayed into Soviet airspace, uh, and uh, which could have been viewed by the Soviets as a provocation and God knows might have led to some kind of conflict right then and there. It didn't, but it was very scary. The second thing that happened was a U-2 spy plane, an American plane, was shot down over Cuba. The Americans knew that. Khrushchev knew that. The Americans thought, well, didn't know who had done it. Had the Cubans done it? It was actually the Soviets who did it, although pressed by Castro to do that. That was another sign of, of danger rising. I should remember a couple of other things that happened on the 27th. By that point, American forces were massing in Florida for a massive invasion of Cuba. Planes, tanks, men, landing craft. And the rumor in around Washington was that it was about to happen. And in fact, <laughs> at the National Press Club in Washington, a, a Russian emigre bartender overheard two Americans, including a journalist, say he was heading to Florida because the, the invasion was about to begin. So that too, Khrushchev learned of. The pilots shot down over Cuba on the 27th of October, whom William just mentioned, was Major Rudolf Anderson, the only US fatality by enemy fire during the Cuban Missile Crisis. As he flew a mission over Cuba on day 12 of the 13 days, Anderson's Lockheed U-2 high-altitude reconnaissance aircraft was struck by Soviet surface-to-air missiles. The cockpit of the aircraft was hit by shrapnel, puncturing his pressure suit, and Anderson was likely killed instantly. President Kennedy later posthumously awarded Anderson the first Air Force Cross, which rewards distinguished service by airmen. On the 27th, Anderson's death prompted renewed calls in XCOM for immediate military action. Robert Kennedy later wrote in his memoir, 13 Days, quote, There was the feeling that the noose was tightening on all of us, on Americans, on mankind, and that the bridges to escape were crumbling. Clearly, despite Khrushchev's move towards compromise, the situation was far from over. And all the while, we mustn't forget Fidel Castro's letter penned to Nikita Khrushchev on the 26th of October that arrived on the evening of the 27th. Here's Alex von Tenzelman, historian and author of Red Heat, Conspiracy, Murder and the Cold War in the Caribbean. While all of that drama was going on, Fidel's letter is slowly, slowly, slowly re reaching Khrushchev in Moscow. And when Khrushchev opened this letter and read it, he absolutely read it in the way that Fidel had not intended. He Suddenly, he thought Fidel was telling him to do a first strike there and then, and he was absolutely horrified. Um, he did not read this as this noble statement of, you know, Cubans self-sacrificing. He thought, basically, that Fidel was telling him, nuke the United States immediately, this is the only thing you should do. And he suddenly realised, I think, what he had done, Khrushchev, at this point. He realised that he had given Fidel Castro, who really could be quite a loose cannon, this absolutely enormous nuclear stockpile of missiles with all the Soviet commanders and firing things and everything in place. And he suddenly realised that actually, you know, the Cubans and the Soviet leaders locally might well act 
without his permission. This was an absolutely terrifying situation. And it seems pretty clear from the record that, you know, whatever was going on at this point with Kennedy and the negotiations, that letter from Fidel Castro was actually really quite decisive from Khrushchev's point of view. He realised at this point that, um, you know, Fidel was a very, very difficult person to work with, um, not going to obey the commands from Moscow and very much acting on his own agenda. And I think it really terrified him. Let's hear more about Castro's letter from Khrushchev's point of view. What the letter said, which Khrushchev received from Castro, said, there's an invasion coming and it may lead to the use of nuclear weapons and you must be brave to strike first under those circumstances. Don't wait to be struck by the Americans. You strike first. And although that may be the end of us, as people and as a revolution, the end of Cuba. We may be destroyed, but so what? We were ready to die for the cause. And when Khrushchev got this letter on the evening of the 27th, he was shocked and horrified because it was a sign that Castro was ready to die and take the world with him. Back to these two letters sent by Khrushchev on the 26th and 27th of October. What is known about why these messages were sent so close together? I asked William for his take. The Americans were shocked and stunned. What kind of guy is this who concedes on one day and then starts adding conditions on the next? I think the first letter was a sign of the growing panic, especially on Khrushchev's part. But the second letter was a sign that he had stiffened his back and was going to make one more attempt to get something else out of the compromise, which he could cite to show that he had succeeded in this half-baked scheme. And he presumably was encouraged (laughs) to do this by his people, his associates in the Kremlin. We know that because, as I said earlier, the letter of the 26th showed signs of, of being dictated personally by Khrushchev. It had his kinds of colorful phrases. I think it might even have had his corrections in the margin. The next letter was much more formal in tone, as if it were written by a committee. And it probably was, that is, by the leadership, including Khrushchev, but going beyond him. Two offers are on the table. How does Kennedy choose to respond? So famously, the way that the Kennedy administration responds to these two letters, ultimately the way that JFK responds, is by answering the first one and not the second. So he sends a letter back to Khrushchev saying, basically, you know, really like your letter on the 26th. I think that's a statement, you know, statesman-like contribution. And, um, yeah, let's settle the crisis on on that basis. There used to be a standard traditional explanation of how the Kennedy administration came to that decision, that sort of clever decision of ignoring the second one, responding to the first one. Because the first letter just asked for one concession, the second letter asked for two. And Robert Kennedy in his memoirs basically takes the credit for that. He said, oh, I was the one who came up with this brilliant idea that, you know, saved the peace and prevented World War Three. It's a few decades ago now, but I remember when I first looked at the declassified transcripts of the XCOM meeting on the morning of the 27th of October, and I knew Robert Kennedy's account and also the account by various historians of how the Kennedy administration came to this decision to respond to the first letter, not the second. And I remember reading the transcript for the first time and just waiting for Robert Kennedy to say, well, you know, why, why don't we ignore the second letter, respond to the first? 
and he and uh, he, he's not saying anything, but several other officials do. McGeorge Bundy, the National Security Advisor, Ted Sorensen, the speechwriter, and others too. Several officials come up come up with the idea. Well, why don't we just respond to the first letter? And then, sort of a long way, long way into the meeting, Bobby Kennedy suddenly says, "You know what? Why don't we just respond to the first letter?" So he took the credit for that later, but in fact, it's a team collaborative effort, and he isn't the person who comes up with the idea. Others, others, others do. So. Kennedy, JFK is influenced by his XCOM advisors, but I've got to say he's impressive. I mean, on that in XCOM on, on the 27th, he says to his advisors, you know, what Khrushchev's saying about the missiles in, in Turkey will seem very reasonable to a lot of people. And he said, are we really going to possibly start World War III over nuclear missiles in Turkey that were basically technologically junk? They were antiquated already. And so he, he, he's, he really leads that discussion in XCOM and is very impressive. And the, in the end, he makes that decision to respond to Khrushchev's letter by saying, we accept the terms of settlement that you've offered in your letter of the 26th of October, which is we will promise not to invade Cuba, you will remove the missiles. But he does one other thing that's very important. He sends Robert Kennedy to speak to Natalie Debrina, the Soviet ambassador in Washington, that evening on the 27th. And Bobby Kennedy privately, off the record, tells Debrina, just to let you know, in terms of the second concession you demanded, we will in due course remove, within a few months, remove US missiles from Turkey. This has to be a private, secret part of the settlement. If you tell the world that we're going to remove the missiles from Turkey, the deal is off and we're not going to do it. I think what he's, JFK is concerned about is that it might look like appeasement, that it might look like he's giving away, you know, US, uh, vital U.S. national security interests, that he's selling out a NATO ally, Turkey, that he's doing Khrushchev's bidding on this. And so it's, it's, I think he's concerned about his political image and how that will look, how that might be criticised by political opponents, Republicans in Congress and so on. So it's that reason he's concerned it will look like appeasement and he wants to avoid that. So by the 28th of October, that's the question is, will Khrushchev accept that? For me, that's the $64,000 question with the missile crisis. What would Kennedy have done if Khrushchev had come back and said, that's all, that's all all right, we can end the crisis now. I'll remove the missiles from Cuba. But the deal on the Jupiter missiles in Turkey has to be public. Would, Ken- would Kennedy have bombed Cuba? Because his generals are still saying that to him. His generals are still saying, we've got to go ahead now and bomb Cuba. Would Kennedy have done that over the missiles in Turkey? I think there's evidence to indicate that when it came down to it, Kennedy would have accepted a public agreement on the removal of the missiles from Turkey had he had to do that. So... With Castro, at least in Khrushchev's eyes, ready to sacrifice Cuba and urging the Soviets to action, and Kennedy's response, offering to secretly withdraw US Jupiter missiles from Turkey, what was the Soviet leader's next move? On the 28th, he conceded, OK, we'll take the missiles out. We won't talk about the Turkish missiles. You promise uh, not to invade Cuba. We will even accept UN inspectors as we pull the missiles out, which we will see in a moment, Castro would not. By the 28th of October, day 13 of the hottest period of the crisis, an agreement between Kennedy and Khrushchev had been reached and the world had been brought back from the brink. As Dean Rusk had it, the Soviets had blinked. <laughs> 
But one of the standoff's central figures was still to be made aware of this. Let's hear more about Castro's reaction to the news that, without consulting Cuba, Khrushchev had conceded. Here's Alex again. When Fidel found out this news that the Soviets were withdrawing the missiles from Cuba, he was absolutely furious and he didn't find out in a particularly good way either. Um, it was The news was on the radio and a journalist telephoned Fidel for confirmation saying that it was happening, um, that the missiles were being withdrawn. Fidel was actually at that point in a meeting with Che Guevara. Uh, the call was put through and Fidel said, no, this isn't true. Khrushchev will never back down. Um, so the journalist read him Khrushchev's statement Um, which in fact said it was true. So Khrushchev hadn't even told Fidel Castro this was happening. He just announced it. So both Fidel and Che went into a big swearing fit. Uh, Fidel wheeled round um, and kicked this huge mirror on the wall, which smashed everywhere. And, you know, really both of them were absolutely furious. But I think Fidel in particular was just absolutely... um, emotionally devastated by this. He had prepared himself for this sort of glorious martyrdom and all of a sudden this decision had been taken completely out of his hands. Um, These missiles were gone. He was reduced to this rather small figure in this, this historical footnote in this particular event and I think he took that incredibly badly. Um, And it's rather sort of psychologically fascinating but he must have really geared himself up for martyrdom um, in this very kind of macho way and then just had it taken away from him. He continued to be furious for a very, very long time after this. He did not calm down. And, you know, he had sort of, he wrote some anguished letters to Khrushchev. He was utterly furious about it. You know, even much later, you know, many, many years later, he was still ranting and raving about it. In Cuba, uh, generally, they started to have little kind of... uh, chants against Fidel Castro. So school children would sing Nikita Mariquita lo que seda no se quita, which means Nikita, you little fairy, what you give you can't take back. So Fidel insisted that, okay, the ballistic missiles weren't technically his, so he's going to have to give them back, but he was going to keep the Ilyushin 28 bombers that uh, Khrushchev had given him. There were all sorts of, you know, very difficult negotiations with the UN and nuclear inspectors. Fidel was just not prepared to let them in. And there were extremely angry situation for months afterwards with Fidel really refusing to negotiate and refusing really to come down off a war footing as well. Castro's displeasure was just as evident to his Soviet allies. Castro was infuriated. He, he, called, he raged that Khrushchev called him an SOB. Uh, I don't know the Spanish words for that. A bastard, an asshole, and no cajones, no balls. Uh, and he refused, or he, he refused for uh, several days, I think, or certainly a couple of days, to talk to the emissary that Khrushchev sent, his his chief ally in the presidium, Anastas Mikoyan. And this is particularly poignant because Mikoyan's wife back in Moscow was dying. And Mikoyan, they gave Mikoyan a chance to return home to comfort his wife and be with her at the end. But he decided to do his duty and stayed to talk to Castro. But Castro made him wait, even under those awful conditions. And when Castro finally reluctantly okayed it, He refused to accept the UN inspections, which Khrushchev had promised, UN inspections of the packing and and sending off of the missiles. 
It's worth lingering for a moment on Castro's take on the agreement reached by Kennedy and Khrushchev. Let's hear more from Alex. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I think there was this huge perception in the West that it was Kennedy's careful negotiation that had really won the day, that that had been, you know, very considered, very managed, you know, restrained, but firm, and that this had been what caused Khrushchev to back down. And of course, that Perception doesn't really survive the opening of the Soviet archives that happened briefly in the 1990s and, you know, Fidel's later discussions about this. In fact, we can see that it was pretty crucial that Fidel Castro wrote this rather deranged letter to Khrushchev that that was actually very instrumental regardless of, and that's not to undermine how Kennedy handled this, but it's just what actually influenced him was not just Kennedy. It was very much also what the Cubans were saying. So I think from the Soviet point of view, the interesting thing is the Americans were experiencing this as a great victory. Actually, so were the Soviets. I mean, Khrushchev celebrated. He said his his take on it was that vis-a-vis Kennedy, he said, I cut his balls off. He thought he had won because he got Kennedy to remove missiles from Turkey and all of this and, you know, not invade Cuba. And Khrushchev thought he'd paid a blinder at the end of it, that it was a great Soviet victory. So there was a very different perception there. And in fact, I think the people that were most unhappy were the Cuban government, who perceived that they had been completely overruled and lost, which indeed, from their perspective, they had. Although, you know, I think many of us might express some relief that Cuba was not, in fact, invaded or nuked um, at the end of the affair. But certainly Fidel Castro saw it as a great shame and a great loss. So, you know, even though, in fact, Cuba had survived and, uh, and would carry on, and so had Fidel Castro's government um, and would survive for very, very much longer, many decades, um, it was, Cuba was probably the place where it was perceived most negatively. With Castro's perception of this crisis as a great loss for Cuba, was it possible for relations with the Soviets to recover? Well, it was very, very difficult. Um, it made things extremely difficult between Havana and Moscow, and it gave a little bit of a fillip to Che Guevara, who was pushing um, a line of getting closer to Beijing instead. Um, that you know there were there was an alternative within the communist world. So basically, you know this this became very difficult for a while. But at the end of January nineteen. 19- 63, uh, Khrushchev wrote to Fidel saying that, you know, come to the USSR, let's try to um, patch things up. You know, he wrote, I've already told you, Comrade Fidel, that there now exists in our relations with you a certain amount of resentment and that this harms the cause, naturally harms Cuba and harms us. Um, so he invited Fidel specifically to make nice with him. Fidel went to the Soviet Union on the 25th of April, 1963, um, spent six weeks there traveling around Leningrad, Volgograd, Tashkent, Murmansk, all, all over the Soviet Union. And they had these kind of bonding activities with him and Khrushchev. They went fishing and hunting and hiking, cross-country skiing. They went to arms factories. I mean, these are the kind of things that communist leaders do to bond with each other. Um, and Khrushchev was really playing nice. So if Fidel ever said, oh, I like that weapon in an arms factory, Khrushchev would be like, you will have it as a gift. We'll give you those. And afterwards, Cuba ended up with this rather odd collection of odds and ends of Soviet weaponry, none of which worked together. But, you know, it was all very flattering building up to this May Day parade in Red Square, Moscow, with Khrushchev and Castro beaming side by side, thousands of Russians watching. So a big sort of propaganda success, really. However, you know, 
we could tell that there were still problems even in this trip. So after that great May Day parade where it all appeared to be very good, they both went back to the Kremlin uh, for a celebratory lunch. It seemed to be going very well. And then the subject of the missile crisis came up. Within seconds, these two men were shouting and swearing at each other. And, you know, it was a fight was breaking out. And then uh, one of the uh, Soviets there dropped a bottle of cognac, which smashed loudly on the floor. And thankfully, Khrushchev just stepped in at that moment and said, in our country, a breaking glass can only ever mean happiness. Fidel laughed um, and the fight was over. So really, this trip kind of managed to bring them back together again, brought Soviet-Cuban relations back into line by this show of camaraderie uh, between Khrushchev and Castro. But... Even many years later, Castro could still be roused into great fury by mention of the missile crisis. He didn't stop really being angry about it. He just understood, I think, the political necessity for him of rebuilding that relationship in the moment. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. From one leader's political necessity to another. For Kennedy too, it was very important to depict the resolution of the crisis in certain terms. Here's Mark explaining how the crisis was regarded in the West. I think the perception was that uh, Kennedy had won the Cuban Missile Crisis, that America had won the Cuban Missile Crisis, because the the withdrawal of the uh, missiles from Cuba uh, represented a obviously represented a reversal of Soviet policy. Khrushchev had been compelled to back down. He obviously wanted those missiles in Cuba, and he'd been forced to remove them. So that seemed humiliating. And also, you know, by the in terms of the broader Cold War context, one key development by the early sixties is that communist China is criticizing Khrushchev a lot for basically being soft in supporting world revolution. So this is grist to their mill and also to Khrushchev's political opponents within the Kremlin. Because one thing we know about Khrushchev is unlike any other Soviet leader, he's sacked. Two years later, he's sacked. He's removed from power. And I think, you know, his backing down 
uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis may well have encouraged Kremlin rivals who saw him as weak, saw him as erratic in his leadership. And as for Kennedy, yeah, he's he's widely praised in the American press. Um, His public approval ratings go sky high. They always were high. He has the highest average recorded approval ratings of any president in modern history. On average, he had 70% positive approval ratings from the American people. I mean, presidents in recent years don't get anywhere near that. They rarely rarely, rarely get above 50% in any one week. But after the Cuban Missile Crisis, his, his, his ratings go even higher. And he's he's perceived as having provided the country with cool, calm, effective leadership that he'd stood up to the Soviets in a kind of Churchillian way, and it was manifestly successful. The missiles had been removed. There was no World War III, no nuclear war. One of Kennedy's strengths during his presidency, and it relates to what we were talking about earlier in terms of his ability to keep cool and calm, was crisis management. His presidency is punctuated by major crises, Overseas, you have the Berlin Crisis 61, as well as the Cuban Missile Crisis 62. But domestically, you have periodic civil rights crises over the University of Mississippi in 62, uh, over Birmingham, Alabama in the spring of 63. And he's always he's, he's almost always able to defuse those crises very effectively. And so it's one of the strengths of his leadership. And you can see it during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the general perception is that JFK has won the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I think... In terms of JFK himself, he was very wary about sort of boasting about it and humiliating Khrushchev. And the strong emotion he had was that he was just sobered by what had happened. I mean, it's one thing to understand nuclear war as a theoretical abstraction. It's another thing to be responsible, along with one other guy in Moscow basically as to whether there's going to be a nuclear war, whether you are going to be responsible for a, certainly a third world war, maybe a nuclear war. And it it really deepens his concerns about the the Cold War, uh, the dangers of it, and the possibility of nuclear war. And I think it's a turning point in his presidency. From that point on, he still believes that the communist challenges are serious. He still believes that the Soviet Union has belligerent tendencies, but he's also very committed to reducing Cold War tensions. And that's why, famously, on the 10th of June, 1963, at American University in Washington, D.C., he gives this landmark foreign policy speech where he calls on the American people to change their attitude towards the Russian people and towards the Cold War. And what follows on from that is the nuclear test ban treaty. And I think Khrushchev, too, he is also sobered by what's happened and how close they've got to war. So I think regardless of how it's perceived privately, they're both really affected by living through the Cuban Missile Crisis and both of them are more determined to make the world a safer place and to and to reduce Cold War tensions. As Mark mentioned, this commitment can be seen in the later signing of the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty by Kennedy and Khrushchev's governments and by other world leaders in August 1963. This banned all nuclear weapons tests except those conducted underground. The treaty is often seen to represent agreement on all sides that the events of October 1962 should never be repeated, and a need to bring to an end the raw aggression that had in part caused the standoff. But in the immediate aftermath of the 13 days, 
on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Khrushchev was waging his own battle to have the outcome recognised as a victory for the USSR. How successful was this? Well, it was was perceived, at least on the surface, as a triumph. But we know now, because the Khrushchev's colleagues kicked him out in 64, and when they did so, they listed in their their grievances against him the handling of the Cuban crisis. We know that they were very unhappy about it. I think it was was an error, a, a conceptual error on Khrushchev's part. Go back to our talking earlier about how Khrushchev viewed Kennedy as weak, and therefore he could push him by putting the missiles in Cuba, and Kennedy would back down. I think another part of Khrushchev's thinking was that if Kennedy was weak, he would take orders from the U.S. military-industrial complex, which would push him into resisting the missiles. And this strikes me in retrospect was a fatal contradiction in Khrushchev's thinking because he says Kennedy is weak, therefore we can prevail, we can push him. But he's also thinking Kennedy is weak, therefore the military will push him, therefore we may not prevail. I think this was a kind of conceptual contradiction at the heart of Khrushchev's thinking, which if he if he had thought this through, which he did not, Uh, And if he had let people advise him uh, skeptically, which he did not, he might have realized that this was not going to work or there was a very good chance it was not going to work. So this takes me back to Khrushchev's psyche and to the way his mind worked and the way it worked helps us understand why the crisis occurred, but it also helps us understand why, from his point of view, it was really a debacle. As we've already heard, Kennedy wasn't entirely victorious. One thing Khrushchev could claim is I've defended the Castro Revolution. And he's right on this in the sense the whole aim, the central aim of Kennedy's policy towards Cuba was the overthrow of Castro, hence the Bay of Pigs, hence the Operation Mongoose, uh, hence the assassination attempts. And with the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy had publicly committed himself not to invading Cuba. So Khrushchev could, could claim that that he had defended Cuba, he had defended the Castro Revolution. And was there any sense that, for Kennedy and his administration, Cuba now posed less of a threat? Were there any more attempts to destabilise Castro's regime? In '63, there was was still covert pressure from the United States, clandestine covert pressure on Cuba. And my understanding is that there there was still assassination plotting going on. So, yeah, but I think the bigger theme, the the, the greater motif in Kennedy's foreign policy is a greater interest in accommodation with communist nations during the Cold War. So in that sense, the assassination of Kennedy on November 63, it's obviously a personal tragedy. Uh, This young man loses his life, uh, his wife loses her husband, uh, children lose a father, but it's also a a political tragedy because he's becoming a more, I think, more interesting, more progressive, better president And you can see it with the American University speech in the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. There's some evidence that he's reconsidering America's role in Vietnam. This is a contentious issue. But he does sign a policy directive in October 1963, a month before his assassination, calling for for the authorising the removal of 1,000 US military personnel from South Vietnam. Some of Kennedy's supporters think that he would have pulled out from Vietnam had he lived. And also in civil rights, 
there was a progressive counterpart to his foreign policy because the day after that American University speech on the 11th of June, he gives what for me is the greatest speech of his uh, of his life, which is a television address on civil rights, which for the first time in the 20th century, a president defines equality, racial equality, civil rights as a moral issue for America, not just a political issue, not just a constitutional issue. And he introduces the Civil Rights Bill to end racial segregation in the South. It will pass a year after after his death in 1964. So uh, he's becoming, as I say, a more progressive, interesting, I think, effective leader. And so his assassination is a tragedy in a political sense as well. Why did that leave Kennedy and Khrushchev? During the final year of Kennedy's life, they do move closer in terms of policy. And famously, in 1963... A few months before JFK's assassination, they do sign the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty to limit nuclear testing. So they're both committed, I think after the missile crisis, because it shocks both men, they're both committed to reducing Cold War tensions. And I seem to remember reading somewhere that when news that Kennedy had been assassinated reached Khrushchev, Khrushchev, that he broke down in tears. Uh, So he clearly felt some personal connection and sympathy for his Cold War rival. If the crisis resulted in some semblance of a thaw in Cold War tensions between East and West, what did it mean for Cuba in the years to come? I asked Alex for her view on the afterlife of the standoff. I think what would have been very, very hard to predict at the time, and certainly Americans at the time would have been very shocked, to imagine that Fidel Castro would remain in power really for the rest of his life, handing over to Raul, of course, For a few years afterwards, Raul has now stepped down. But all of these efforts to remove the Castros, I think in retrospect, we can see very clearly, and actually some people really did suggest at the time, including within the American administration, that what these would do, in fact, is shore the Castros up. And, you know, in many ways, I think the a very crucial lesson of American engagement with Cuba, with the embargo that has gone on, Cubans call it el bloqueo, so that's what they call a kind of blockade, Um, the embargo that's been going on since then and so forth. The effect of all of that really has been to justify the Castro regime, because effectively anything that goes wrong has always been blamable on the fact that, yes, but there is a blockade. There is, you know, the Americans blockade us. So what can we do? We can't have these resources. We can't do anything because there is this great enemy that is determined to destroy us. So that has allowed really the Castros to blame everything on the US, uh, regardless of whether it's really the fault of that or not, um, for decades. And I think to some extent we can see that's been successful. We can also see that a lot of Cubans haven't bought that line. Um, We know a lot of Cubans have left Cuba, um, have set up exile communities elsewhere, take a very different view. Um, And of course, within Cuba, some take a different view, although politically it's not always a good idea to express that. And what other lessons were learned? I mean, the missile crisis is a very, very big event in Cuban history. Obviously, it's the point where Cuba is really at the centre of world attention. But in terms of Cubans' own perception of their history, if you go to kind of museum in Havana of national history, it's very much more about the Cuban revolution. You know, the missile crisis is not the centre of their story at all. Their story is about how, you know, very much against uh, Spanish and then American imperialism, that Cubans finally were able to assert a nationalist vision of their own, um, 
eventually, of course, linked to a socialist vision, and then, you know, assert their own independence against repeated efforts from the United States to assassinate Fidel Castro and to destroy the revolution and so on. So it becomes this real story of a duality about Cuba versus America. And the missile crisis in that is kind of a fairly small event. It's not the focus of the story. That's not the picture on the t-shirts that are in the gift shop, quite honestly. Um, they're very much more focused on the revolution itself. And I think that probably is partially to do with the fact that for Fidel Castro, this was not a triumph. This was for him a disgrace and a huge letdown. Um, so the, you know, the event is just not the centre of how Cubans would see their own history at this point. I think the missile crisis is really fascinating for several reasons. I mean, first of all, of course, it really is um, such a close brush with a major nuclear war. Um, the only, you know, the closest brush we've had, really, the most spectacular and much closer than people knew at the time because of the presence of nuclear missiles in Cuba. The warheads were actually there. That was far more dangerous than people realised. Um, it was very, very close. And I do think that that had a lasting impact, actually, both in the Soviet Union and in the United States. Um, it did reinforce the idea that actually nuclear war really could happen quite easily through miscommunication, miscalculation and so on. And that really there needed to be much more care taken. I mean, one obvious, <laughs> it sounds small, but so significant legacy was the installation of a proper hotline between Moscow and Washington so that they could telephone each other rather than having to spend 12 hours of time laboriously sending and translating these messages. And, you know, that actually reduced risk quite significantly. For instance, the fact that you could have communication um, was a very, very big advance. And I think it did, you know, underline the need uh, really to make treaties and step this stuff down rather than het them up. You know, the, the dangerous toys these guys were playing with, suddenly those dangers were very, very obvious to a lot of people. It was very frightening indeed. So I do think that that, you know, made a very big impact on the Cold War. And I think there are other aspects of it that are very interesting, though. I mean, a crucial part of this story is how a small state like Cuba can suddenly assume such enormous importance and how so much can happen, you know, in in that way. And there's an extent to that which kind of somewhat comes under the headings of proxy wars, which happened a lot in the Cold War. A very big part of the Cold War was proxy wars fought, of course, elsewhere with funding and sometimes troops from the superpowers, um, but not direct engagement. But I think also what you see there is that actually when people talk about proxy wars, the leaders of these kind of less powerful countries are not pawns, actually. They have their own agendas and their own opinions. And that became incredibly obvious with such a strong character as Fidel Castro. For good or for ill, that became very, very apparent that in fact, he wasn't just some meek functionary accepting these missiles and going to do whatever he was told. Really, in fact, quite the opposite. So that was, I think, a pretty important lesson, which in many ways wasn't really learnt because in fact, both the US and the Soviet Union continued to engage with such people, um, not necessarily always with brilliant results. Um, you know, we can certainly see again, if you want to go a bit later, for instance, uh, America um, funding the Taliban uh, to as a force against the Soviet Union. And the result of that was, of course, disastrous too. So, you know, not much actually was learnt about how you engage with these movements and with very strong, difficult characters. So... After the 13 days, the most dangerous period of the crisis, the world had been brought back from the brink. At the end of it all, and in the six decades since, 
Have the questions of credit or blame become any clearer? I would put it this way. The two of them, each in his own way, created the crisis. Kennedy created it by seeming to threaten to invade Cuba again. And by revealing, as his uh, deputy secretary of defense did in October 61, that the U.S. had a vast military superiority of intercontinental missiles, which Khrushchev was trying to rectify with the Cuban missiles. So Kennedy sort of goaded, provoked Khrushchev into trying to do something about all of this. But what Khrushchev decided to do was created the crisis itself. The, the decision to send these missiles, the way he sent the missiles, the way they were unloaded, the way they were, the way they were so easy to spot from U-2 spy planes. I blame them both in that sense. But having created this crisis, they both showed great maturity and wisdom in ending it peacefully. We have had some presidents since then whom, uh, in the United States whom I won't name. And we have a Russian president now who is a lot more explosive and willing to use force in Ukraine. I mean, it's really quite remarkable how Khrushchev and Kennedy cooperated in defusing the crisis that they had jointly begun or provoked. As for Khrushchev himself, we've already heard that he was ousted from office in 1964 by the Presidium. How has the communist leader been remembered in the USSR and Russia since then? Well, he, first of all, in the Soviet Union itself, he was never mentioned for the next 23 years. Gorbachev mentioned him in 1987 in a speech he gave. But the Soviets, I think, continued Soviet people I got to, to know and talk to as I did my research, still viewed him as something of a joke. The man who talked too much and who blew up too much and was ill-educated, he particularly blew up in intellectuals. Uh, and absolutely reamed poets, you know, and and others who went too far in taking advantage of the cultural thaw that Khrushchev himself had begun. I think Soviets were always a little embarrassed by him in retrospect. In the West, we were fascinated, and there were a series of conferences in the late 80s and 90s about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, I went to three of them in uh, Florida, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Moscow. Then there were two more in Antigua and Havana, which I didn't get to go to, but I've read all about them, including the meeting in Havana between McNamara and Castro, and then all the discussion about uh, what had gone on. And, and very important revelations came out of those conferences, which bear on our understanding of the crisis itself. As William says, and Alex mentioned last episode, these conferences in the decades following the crisis were vital in historians' understanding of events. Throughout this series, we've explored the roots of the crisis, the failure in communication and the secret pacts that drew us so near to nuclear disaster in 1962. And along the way, we've asked whether any lessons were learned. Let's end on a final revelation that perhaps helps us to realise just how close the world came to the brink. They learned at the conference from a Soviet general who was one of the participants that Khrushchev had not only sent intermediate range missiles capable of destroying Washington, Atlanta, you know, 
a circle in the United States. But he had also sent tactical, short-range tactical nuclear weapons, which could have destroyed an American invasion force if we had actually gone so far as to invade. We did not know that until many years later. And this was a devastating thing to realize because if they had those missiles and if they had used them to destroy the American landing force, then we would have been on our way to a nuclear war, certainly taken the first steps. So this was a horrifying thing to learn. We learned that in the beginning, the Soviet generals had permission to use these in the event of an attack on their own troops. We learned that that permission was then removed, but there was no physical constraint. If the Americans had landed on Cuba in a massive invasion and the Soviet generals had decided to defend their troops with these tactical nuclear weapons, there was no way Moscow could have stopped them, even though it had ordered them not to use these weapons. And we learned one other thing a little bit later, that one of the Soviet submarines, which was approaching the quarantine blockade line, which Kennedy had established, had a nuclear torpedo ready to use. And at, at one point, uh, the American ships on the surface or planes, too, began dropping small depth charges to force that submarine to the surface. And the Soviet commander decided for a moment to use the nuclear torpedo only to change his mind and not do it. So there were two ways in which nuclear weapons could have been used and we came very close to their use. You know, and this is important because until we learned about the tactical nuclear weapons and the submarine nuclear torpedo, for many years in the West, this crisis was viewed as an occasion for exemplary crisis management. It was viewed as a model, almost as an ideal. This is the way you handle a crisis. And if you could do it this way so successfully, it meant you could be a little more relaxed about other crises because this kind of crisis management could get you through. Well, I think what we finally learned was that this crisis management was not enough and it took a hell of a lot of luck. And this crisis management might have still produced a nuclear war which could have destroyed half the world. Thanks for listening. This episode was written and researched by me, Eleanor Evans, and produced by Brittany Colley. Thanks to the historians who joined me for this series. Alex von Tenzelman's book, which covers America's secret war in the Caribbean from 1957 to 67, is Red Heat, Conspiracy, Murder and the Cold War in the Caribbean, published by Simon & Schuster. Mark White has written a number of books on the Cuban Missile Crisis and most recently co-edited a volume called The Presidential Image, A History from Theodore Roosevelt to Donald Trump, published by Bloomsbury Publishing. William Taubman is the author of a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography, Khrushchev, The Man and His Era, published by W.W. Norton & Company. You can find links to these in the episode description. Additional checks by Daniel Adamson. Dig into more articles about the crisis and find all other episodes on our website at historyextra.com forward slash Cuban dash missile dash crisis.